are both recording, so we are back with another episode of Beyond the Block. Thank you, everyone, for joining us. Yes, thanks for joining us. Derek, how you doing this week? I'm doing great. I love studying the scriptures. It's uh, I just love that I get to do that. It's I mean, I'm sure other people think it's like vegetables, but I love it. I think <laughs> there's just so much practical wisdom and beauty and power through a uh, mastery of the scriptures. Yeah, man. It just makes so much sense. It's pretty cool, man. I, I'm going to confess something to you that, uh, you know, I hope my mission president isn't listening, but uh, I remember I, the days I valued, the days I may have valued a little too much were the days when my companion was sick and I got to stay in all day and do personal study by myself while my companion was in bed. Like, mm. I got so much out of my study on those days where I could literally just focus on my scriptures and maybe make a few calls, but mostly be focused on my personal study. Uh, you know, there's always somebody to study for, but there was always like a depth to the basics. You could always, uh, you know, study more of. And this was like around the same time where we were allowed to use a little bit more study materials. So, you know, I, I, I was just thinking about how, as you spoke, how cool it would be to just literally not be obligated to do anything other than, you know, study your scriptures or even get to do that for your living, dare I say. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I don't I don't want to say this too much, but there's uh I was chatting online with a prominent ex-Mormon. He's I think everyone probably knows his name. I'm not going to say his name. Okay. But I talked to him about his journey with the the scriptures and I'm like, well, you're complaining about racism and homophobia, but did you make any noise when you were in the church? And he's like, no. Like, he didn't He didn't even know. He didn't know about these things. And I said, well, they're in the scriptures. Like, if you look at Official Declaration 2, it's there. If you look at yep. polygamy, it's there in D&C 132. And he told me, well, I just listened to the correlated lessons and never really studied the Bible on my own or any of the scriptures. I didn't even know the priesthood ban existed to complain about it. Mm. And I'm yep. like, wow. Not to not to blame him for this because no. I think there's right, a right. whole bunch of cultural baggage around the way that people people are socialized to, do, to be dependent on others. Definitely. Um, and I think if we changed that culture and helped people have a more vibrant and resilient faith one that's grounded in a deep knowledge of the scriptures people would be much more resilient and immune to things and they would just be better christians um, definitely and and i don't want to buy into this oh you left the faith because you weren't reading your scriptures fa enough Right. Which, that's which, not what you're saying at all. That's not what I'm saying at all, because people, when they say that, they think it's just like some magic remedy. Like, oh, it's just some, you know, has magical powers that will keep you in the church. No, I'm saying what people don't realize is that the scriptures are a record of people working through real life and trying to discern what God's will is for a situation. And there's right. power there that if you actually understand it, don't just take out a verse here and there as a little jewel that you put on your hat right but but absorb the actual argument of of like an entire book of the bible or an entire letter and see where where the author is going there is something there that helps us live a real life that's empowered by the spirit for daily living big time 
So, whoa, I should... I just can't stop talking about the Bible, so I should stop. But we can nah, talk about that later. <laughs> ah, um, okay. I was but, enjoying that, actually. <laughs> but my point is, like, we as a culture can do more. And I'm glad that our church is is saying, look, we need this to be more home-centered and church-supported rather than the other way around where we spoon-feed you everything. I, right. I like that. I mean, we are God's living church, and and I think— that is clearly the right way to go after, you know, a generation or so of, of doing it a little bit differently. We are, we're, we're being moved by the spirit in a new direction. And I think that opens up a lot of room for our own dignity and uh, looking at the scriptures from a queer perspective or a, the perspective of a person of color or a feminist perspective, because look, we don't have an official creed or confession that we all have to sign on to we're all moved by the spirit uh in a church that believes in continuing revelation and that we have not only the ability but the duty to liken the scriptures unto ourselves i think we are better situated than many of our protestant or catholic friends on that issue because we're supposed to take the scriptures and use them as a springboard and a catalyst for personal revelation and reflection. Yeah, big time. And that's what I like most about this whole come follow me thing is it encourages people to do that study in their homes and on their own. It encourages a greater biblical literacy, I feel like, or scriptural literacy in general that I don't think we quite had before. And I certainly wish I had that when I was young because, you know, just speaking for myself, I didn't know about the priesthood ban until I was 12. You know what I'm saying? And, you know, that's like right when I received the priesthood or whatever, I would have liked to have come up in a home that was conditioned to value scripture study and to value, you know, the study of the church even as we, Mm -hmm. you know, as I grew up. And uh, to your point that you made earlier, I, I don't feel like we as a church culture really encourage that kind of learning. We encourage a dependence, or at least at that time we did, encouraged a dependence on, um, you know, on church leadership. In fact, just this past week, and, you know, I'll discuss this, you know, once we get to the prayer roll, you had people citing nothing more than leaders of the church and their unity on certain issues for why they believe as they do, particularly when it comes to upholding doctrinally indefensible practices and behaviors that dispossess people. So uh, I, I really feel like this can be a road to removing ourselves from that culture that allows such things to happen. Right, right, yes. All right, cool. Well, let's uh, let's jump into some news, shall we? Sure. So, Derek, uh, the first thing I want to touch upon is uh, this church, the, the church's new uh, child protection training. Now, as far as I understand, at least from the, uh, I guess, the articles that have been read or spoken of, it, it looks like uh, that every adult that's working with, you know, children or teens in the church. Uh, they got to complete an online training course about preventing and responding to abuse, and right. uh, it looks like they got to do that by they got to do that by the beginning of fall. Uh, yeah. So, uh, what did you what what did what did you make of the training? First of all, I kind of want to ask that question. So, I went through the training myself, and anyone who has a login, you know, the church's login situation. Uh, yeah. Anyone who has a login 
and a membership number. You don't have to be a member to take the training, but you do have to have a login. Anyone yeah. can go on and take this training, and I did that. Uh, and I think overall it's good. It It's good for what it does. It doesn't do everything that it that needs to be done, but what it does is uh, it is good. I think the fact that there's now at least some structure in place some standardization across the board so that everyone is on the hook for knowing what to do when they hear uh, reports of abuse. I there There's things that it didn't cover uh, that I think it should have covered better. I should also say that I'm not a psychologist or an expert on on you know abuse prevention. I'm coming at this as a theologian, and so I'm looking at what are the values behind this. And I think the protection of children is one of the most important values that we believe in as a church. This is just without question something that should be on the top of every person's priority. And they brought this out theologically in the training. It's like children need to have a safe, not just be safe because they need to be safe, but they need to have a safe environment so that they can learn the gospel and so that they can um, begin a life of discipleship and that they can feel comfortable and safe at church. Right, and if we don't do that, then, then uh, we we've missed the whole point of church. I think one thing that I noticed is that there was diversity. If they had these uh, illustrated sort of slideshows that they that they did, and it wasn't all white people. They had like Sister Jackson there and Brother Chin and. Sister Martinez. Sister Jackson. <laughs> yeah, Sister Jackson. That was her name. And there was this lovely black family in there. And it says, like, say, Sister Jackson is definitely a black family. <laughs> it, it had a question like, Sister Jackson noticed this other young woman's leader alone with a young woman. And what should she do? And I think, uh, I think there's, it, what it didn't do very well is go into the, a lot of details about how to recognize abuse, how to recognize grooming how to recognize yeah. these things. It talks about what to do if someone reports abuse to you, like this is right. what happened to me, but doesn't doesn't talk a lot about, it talks a little bit. It focuses on- It has some on, definitions, right? Like it had some definitions for it stuff like that. It had some definitions, but it didn't give, uh, now the definitions help if you already know what it is, right? <laughs> but I don't think it gave like concrete examples or like this is, these are some data or statistics about how often this happens or what, it just doesn't make it as concrete for people unless they already know what's going on. I Interesting how that, knowing a definition still doesn't help you know what something is, isn't it? Right. I think uh, now I think the definitions are okay, but it just doesn't probably register the same way unless you have like a real life story or example right. about how it doesn't because none of these things are really clean. You know, clean cut from the outside because there's a. If there are predators, they're going to mask everything and they're going right, to right. to hide things and they're going to to appear to be very virtuous people. Yes, and I think uh, one of the other challenges I had was that it 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 said that if if you notice abuse or re report abuse, that you should bring this attention to the law enforcement, which I think is very important. Yeah, but I did notice that. But it didn't that. say that what 
bishop it didn't say the same instructions for bishops and uh it, it, basically for the bishops they're supposed to call the helpline that the church has i don't know if they already know that they're supposed to call law enforcement as well or if the helpline advises them about what their legal responsibility is but i think having more clarity around that would have been better yeah yeah also the this gets into the whole controversy about whether bishops can be alone with children or not um yeah i should uh uh, uh yeah so there's things that it did well i think the things that it set out to do within 30 minutes it did it did a good job but it obviously doesn't do everything yeah Still a big step, though, and I want to give the church props for that, you know. I would have preferred that the program not necessarily be, you know, when I, when I saw that the program was online, I'm like, okay, that's that's not ideal, but, you know, it is something, and, uh, you know, I really appreciated that. I appreciated that it was, like, at least, it's, it's about half an hour long, right? Right, right. Although yeah, if so you breeze through it really fast, you could probably get through it in less than half that time. Oh, okay then. Yeah. So yeah, there's that. Um, and uh, I don't know. A big thing that I saw people praising this for and something that I agree with was this idea that bottom-up revelation is actually a thing. Like the leaders of the church can feel the pulse of its general membership right. and then receive revelation based on that pulse. You know what I'm saying? Like right. it totally mm-hmm. testifies to the ability and to the truth that this is just as much our church as it is anybody else's church, particularly the leaders, like the members, the regular lay members of the church, us in our local wards, in our branches or whatever, we can totally be the people that drive positive change. And, uh, that's, that, that's very, that's very comforting to me as a member of the church. That should be very comforting to any member of the church who fear like, who feel like, their opinions or their concerns don't necessarily matter. Right. That is, that is really true. I think there's a, a, a big, a big thing to say about that, especially when you, if you look at that, that's kind of the biz, the biblical pattern. There are a number of cases where people who aren't the leader go up to the leader and say, Hey, double check this for me, or this is, you should ask the Lord about this. And they get their answer. Oh yeah. oh, yeah. Yeah. Like one of the prominent examples is in Exodus chapter 18, where Jethro, who is Moses's father-in-law, goes up to Moses and says, look, what you're trying to do is too hard for you to judge all these cases. What you need to do is delegate your authority uh, to other people and have them judge the cases. And that will free up your time. And Moses didn't tell Jethro, how dare you to you know, tell a prophet what to do. He's like, okay, let yeah. me just go ask the Lord. And it turns out that was a good idea. And it and, was, and there's just many other examples about, about how people who come to, that's the whole point of having see, let me just say as someone who comes from a background where we don't have living prophets, it is so refreshing to say, look, when we've got a problem, we can ask the Lord through the Lord's appointed servants. Like, the, like wow. And then some of us try to shame us when we take advantage of one of the most brilliant features of the restoration. Like, that's yes. the whole point of having a living prophet is that we can ask yep. the Lord stuff. 
Big time, big time. Yeah. We actually have sections of the Doctrine and Covenants that are just that, of regular members of the church asking questions of the prophets and the prophets receiving revelation. That's how we got the word of wisdom. Like, right. that is, that is a, that's a big deal. And if yes. I could just add my own uh, example of this, one of my favorite examples of this happening is in the book of First Nephi, when, um, when Nephi breaks his bow and then his whole family murmurs, even, even Lehi, the prophet, right. even he murmurs. And um, you know what Nephi does is take incredible amount of initiative. He you know, makes his own bow, makes his own arrow, and then what he does next like, really stands out to me. He doesn't you know, assume for himself um, you know, the rights and responsibilities of, you know, the prophet or whatever. What he does, he goes back to right. his father who sinned against God by murmuring against him. And he's like, nah, you ask him, you handle this. You know, he goes back to his dad who erred, even though he was the prophet and was like, hey, I need you to handle this for me. Can you ask God what he wants us to do? Because you're technically still the guy. I know you're not necessarily in the best space, but this is your responsibility. So can you handle this for me? And, you know, there's a lot of things to be learned from that particular story. But uh, one of the most relevant to me is just the fact that, you know, even when our leaders may step out of line, we still have a responsibility to, um, I, I don't know, there's so much good things that Nephi did here. But we have a responsibility to, in effect, pick up the slack, but also honor and respect the... Ah, gosh, the calling of a prophet by making sure we, you know, talk to them, even if they necessarily can't give us answers all the time. You know, I don't know, just that there's a couple of powerful things there that I'm not articulating very well, but I hope they're coming through. Yeah, and I think that story, along with the likening the scriptures unto yourself, is sort of my two most powerful justifications for queer interpretation of the scriptures. Yeah, that I was I can, about to bring that, that I up. That can derive from the from the Book of Mormon. So obviously, liking the, the scriptures unto yourself is a big justification. But the another big justification is the fact that Nephi, like you said, took some initiative and responsibility. He created. He he saw the need. He saw the need of his people. His people would starve without a without food, and so he took the initiative. He said, "I'm going to construct this technology." that's tailored to the problem that my people are experiencing. And then I'm going to take this thing that I already did and show it to the leaders and say, how, sh where should I direct it? Where should I direct this? Yeah. And I think that's, that's what that's I'm doing great. with, with my queer theology. I am trying to develop a technology to save my people, not just to save their lives, but to save their souls as well. I want people, I want families stay together. I want people to be able to stay in the church safely I want people to stay alive. I think that looking at the scriptures this way really, really is a boost for queer and trans people in the church. And it's, I'm not unfaithful. I'm not unorthodox at all in what I'm doing. I'm literally doing what I've been commanded to do. Mm -hmm. And I'm saying, look, here's what I'm doing. And then I'm taking it to the leaders and say, look, where should I deploy this? Yeah, man. Yeah, and the, I think the last thing that I want to say about the training is not that it fixed everything, but it's an important step, and I think it's an important cultural step as well because now we've we've taken the first step in saying, oh, look, as a church, we're going to take this seriously in this particular way. 
So now it gives everyone the freedom and the, what's the word? The freedom and the um, justification for saying, okay, look, no, we're we can take this seriously because now there's a legitimacy to all the things that we've been doing all along to protect kids um, yeah. on the ground. And so now it will change the culture of a ward. Like if there's a, if there's anything that comes up, everyone in the ward who has responsibility over children will have done the same training and people can appeal to that and say, no, look, we all did this training. You're not supposed to be alone with a, with this person at this time. You know, I yeah. think that is a great platform for more change down the road because once you've got this cultural shift, then, then it makes it more accelerated down the road. Big time. And that was like one of the other things I saw get highlighted by this whole thing was that uh, this is the first time we've done a training and it'd be recorded and associated with, you know, a membership number. This is this is an official thing that we're doing now as a church to protect our children. And now we all get to hold ourselves and each other accountable for that. So uh, big deal, a big landmark event for the church. All right. Anything else you want to uh, talk about with regard to um, no. with regard with the new training? Yes. Okay. So the next thing on the list I got here is the um, is the BYU changes to uh, the honor code. They announced some more changes to the honor code. That's what it looks like anyway. And uh, yeah, man, I- I'm trying to think what what are the latest changes? Gosh, I had them right here. Da-da-da-da-da. More updates. Okay. So uh, it looks like the latest change, the latest big change anyway, is um, they are going to let students know why they've been asked to meet with an honor code administrator before they are scheduled appointment. So before, you would just go into the office when you were called. I remember when I was uh, called in to tattle on somebody, they didn't really tell me what I was going to the honor code office for. They just called me in. And then they told me what was up and they expected me to act right then and there on, uh, on the information they were giving me. So, uh, they don't, they're not going to be doing that anymore. They are going to let students know why they've been asked to meet with an administrator and then they will schedule an appointment and meet with the administrator. So yeah, used to be a scheduled or like a generic phone call for an appointment and now it's not that way. It improves it looks like it improves transparency. It reduces anxiety in the process. So overall, it looks like a pretty positive change. Yeah, I don't have much to comment on that because, other than like, okay, that sounds like a like a good step. But I don't. I'm not from that context, so I can't speak any more with any more detail on that. Cool. I mean, all that's really important to note here is that the honor code office is making more changes for good. Uh, at least in terms of reducing anxiety and proving transparency, which is going to be nothing but good for BYU, particularly when it comes to handling their enforcement of the honor code. So not a big deal, but also significant for the BYU students. If there's nothing else we want to talk about there, then we can go on to this uh, final piece of news that we have, which is August 2019, officially marks the 400th anniversary of slavery in the United States of America. Right. Uh, 
What what did you want to say about this first before we talk about what this means? Well, I think that all of most people know important dates like July fourth, seventeen seventy six. And I think this is one of the dates that people don't really think about. Or I should say white people don't for the most part don't really think about. Um but it is something that is essential to understand where we were and where we are as a country because our country was literally built on the enslaved labor of another race. So many of our institutions, so many of our buildings, so many of our economic gains, so many of... Um, Almost a trillion dollars say, worth of economic gains. Yeah. Um, but... A lot of the things, I hate to say this, but a lot of the things that people like about America were built because of the advantage that uh, white people had over their enslaved fellow human beings. And we just, we, we have to name this and realize, look, this, this is something that has, is, and it's not just something that's in the past, but the whole setup has influenced everything up until this day. And I, I'm not expecting people to, uh, to apologize for what their ancestors did because that, that doesn't actually make logical sense. Right. But what, I, what we can do is recognize that people still benefit from what their ancestors did. And that mm-hmm. the way that things were set up continues to have a disproportionate impact here and now, and that needs to be fixed. What do you, I? What are your thoughts? Because you obviously you are uh, much more qualified to have thoughts on this than I am. So, what are your thoughts? All I was thinking to myself was, uh, you know, when. You know, they've been talking a lot about this on NPR, and I listen to the radio every morning. And uh, something that I don't know if it was hosts or callers in that were saying, but, uh, you know, they made 400 years sound like it was such a long time ago. And more to the point, the institution of slavery ended just in 1865. You know, like the church was restored, and this was just like barely, I mean, this was less than. Gosh, math is escaping me right now. So 1865, 1965, this was less than 200 years ago that the institution of slavery was abolished. Like we are three or four generations removed from slavery. That that, right. that means that I could have had, like my parents' grandparents could have been born during this time. You know what I'm saying? That 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 slavery was still an institution. My parents were alive during Jim Crow, you know? My mother was one of the first children to participate in busing in South Carolina when that was a thing, you know, back when she was in school. Like, we're not far removed from this at all. And um, I, I wish people would understand that. And, you know, you've already alluded to this, but we've simply moved from slavery to Jim Crow to mass incarceration and redlining, like the effects, the legacy of slavery is still very much an active part of American society. And 
the quicker we can realize that, the quicker we can heal. It's a statistically indisputable fact that racism still permeates every institution of American life. And we cannot adequately address the malady that is racism until we at least acknowledge that as a nation. And I feel like a lot of of the racial tensions we experience in this country, a lot of racial tensions that I experience at church come as a result of not fully embracing that fact. So um, all all I suppose I, I want to make sure people are aware of is that if you're aware that this is a problem, just be aware that you play a vital part in eradicating this issue. I, I feel like a lot of misunderstandings and miscommunications and worse happen as a result of people not displaying enough empathy to so much as learn the important dates, learn what those dates mean, learn what that history means, and learn the implications of that history for both their lives and the lives of their black and brown brothers and sisters. This is, this is primarily the reason why I received the opportunity to do that lesson in Elders Quorum about a month ago. I was simply trying to let people know, and you know, the quorum was trying to know what the church's history of racism has to do with them now and what kind of implications that has for how we conduct ourselves as a quorum and how we conduct ourselves in the world uh, as, a, as a missionary church. And I really do think that as we understand that better, you know, we talked about this on our NAACP episode, the church's relationship with the NAACP should be symbolic of how we as a church seek to better our interactions with the black people that we know, with the black community ourselves. Because when that is able to happen, then we are able to be better ministers to them. And if we're better ministers to them, more of them will join the church. And if more of us join the church, that is only going to do wonders for our missionary work and the spreading of the gospel through the earth. So it's really all about, you know, the spread of the gospel. It's really all about the atonement and making sure that's accessible to everybody. So that's, I suppose that's the button I want to put on this conversation is that if people do the work of making sure they understand what the legacy of slavery entails, then they are ultimately going to be better tools in the hands of God to make the atonement accessible to everyone. Yes, and I think adding on to that, as a theologian, I have to say, I'm not qualified to speak about a lot of things, but one thing that I feel that I should say is that religion, and Christianity in particular, was not neutral in this tragedy. People Mm. justified the enslavement of another people based on their interpretation of the scriptures, which should give all of us humility and patience when we uh, are tempted to use our religious traditions, whatever they are, for for racism. And, yeah. and, and people, uh, it, one thing I should point out is that these, these were, you know, in 1619, 20 Africans were brought to this country, to Jamestown, Virginia, and, and sold. And, like, this is not in accordance with the gospel of Jesus Christ. I, I have to say that clearly because there's other people who were Christian who were totally okay with that. And Scripture never anywhere supports this. Now, 
I do have to say, just for for technicality, that that the uh, the Hebrew Bible does allow people to sell themselves into slavery. That's that's in the text, but it doesn't allow you to kidnap people. In fact, if you look at Exodus twenty one verse sixteen, it says very clearly, "And he that stealeth a man, and selleth him, or if he be found in his hand, shall surely be put to death." So mm-hmm. human trafficking is a capital crime according to the scriptures. There's there's no moral justification for this. But hmm. yet people will be under the influence of their religion and find a religious excuse or justification for their own prejudice and their own advantage. And that is still happening today to our yep. our black, black and brown friends of color. Yeah. Yeah, still happening to, you know, not just black and brown folks, but, you know, other folks on the margins. Uh, I'm just off the top of my head. I was specifically thinking about, you know, members of the queer community and also immigrants using God's word to deny people humanity. And it's one of the most egregious offenses we can we can commit according to Christ himself. But I'll talk about that a little bit later. We don't have to talk about that now. Right. Right now we're talking about the 400th anniversary of slavery. And, uh, you know, thank you for sharing those scriptures and, uh, you know, for talking about what those mean and also explaining that, you know, religion has been used as a weapon, I, you know, as a weapon to dehumanize uh, black people. Um so so yeah was was there anything else you wanted to say about that because I think all my thoughts no, are finished. That's that's all I had. Wonderful, wonderful. Okay, then let's go ahead and get into "Come Follow Me" real quick. Uh, I don't think either one of us have that much we want to share, or at least not nothing huge that we want to share. Um, I only have one thing really I want to address because it spoke to me a little bit more, and I'll tell you the reason why. Mm-hmm. Um. Now, this is kind of standard. Like, I feel like everybody talks about, uh, once they get to this section of Corinthians, they want to talk about the unity talked about in 1 Corinthians 10 and 11, uh, particularly the unity of the body of Christ. And there are so many applications of this, and the most common one that I hear at church is the is the uh, application of being content with, with, with where the Lord asks you to serve because everybody has a responsibility. Now, the reason this stood out to me a little bit more this week was because I was watching the Chris, uh, the Chris Rock Netflix special. Uh, he came out with a stand-up special, and uh, I was watching that. And uh, he was talking about his two rules of marriage, and his second rule really stuck with me. And the second rule that he brought up was that there's no equality in a relationship. Um, you could take umbrage with that, but he went on to explain what he meant to say or what he meant when he said that. And he said it's like being in a band and how people in the band have different roles and they're all necessary. Sometimes, though, you're the lead singer and sometimes you're the tambourine player. (laughs) Um, (laughs) So, like, yeah, sometimes you're the tambourine player. And that doesn't mean you're less important. That just means you have a role that's not as glamorous or whatever, but it's still an important role. You know what I'm saying? Um And if you're on tambourine, you know what I'm saying? Then it's your responsibility to play the hell out of that thing with a smile on your face. You know, you play it like Tina Turner is what Chris <laughs> wow. Rock said. Yeah. Um, and then what he said next, like, 
it was the funniest part of this, but it was like the biggest nugget of truth I got from his stand-up special. He said, "It's like hauling oats. I don't know what o- I don't know what oats does, but Hall wouldn't have a hit record without him." <laughs> you know. <laughs> And I was just like, that is so brilliant. You know, I I feel like we in the church get so hung up on what our callings mean and what our responsibilities are in the church. I I remember the first time I got a glimpse of this was when I was on my mission, like how people would aspire to be district leaders, zone leaders, assistants, and how people would feel so slighted when they were at their six-month mark and still a junior companion or their nine-month mark and still a junior companion or how they felt if they got called to work in the mission office as an office elder. Like so many people found so many reasons to get mad because either they got leadership responsibilities they didn't want or their leadership responsibilities that they did want never came. And then, you know, I got home and I saw more of that in the church, how people would receive callings to be on the activities committee and then just not feel like they were important or not feel like, you know, God loved them because he didn't trust them with what he, what they felt was a bigger responsibility. But the reality is whether you're Malcolm Moore or Ryan Lewis you're not going to generate a hit record without each other. You know what I'm saying? Like whether you're in the activities committee, whether you're in the primary, uh, you know, whether you're the primary piano mm-hmm, player, right. whether you're the bishop or the high counselor, it doesn't really matter what your responsibility is. Your responsibility is to operate in that capacity with joy and with gusto. You play the heck out of that tambourine. That is what your responsibility is. No matter what your responsibility is in the band. And I think Dieter F. Uchtdorf said it best when he said, you know, lift where you stand. And uh, further, you know, this this analogy is really taken further when you see exactly how much an organization or, you know, how much an organization is affected when you take any one part away. Like I think the analogy used here is if you stub your toe, or something like that, you are concentrated on the pain of that toe. Like nothing is happening without that toe. If you break your leg or something like that, your leg is important. Like even though you may not think you need your leg or whatever, if one leg is, you know, done, then, you know, you're pretty much out for the count until you recover. Like the the whole point is every part of the body is necessary for you to be an effective body. Every part of the church is an important part of the church. Every responsibility is an important part of the church. Um, Some are more seen than others. Some are more prominent than others, but all are important. So yeah, that was a, that was my primary takeaway. You don't have to know what the activities committee member does. You don't have to know what Oates does. All you need to know is that there wouldn't be a hit hollow notes record without Oates. And uh, that's, yeah, that's an important thing to note. Yeah, and I think one thing to note is um, what a healthy body looks like. The parts okay. of your body should not be in competition with one another or attacking one another. They all have a specialized role. And if, you know, if, you know, my, I don't know if my foot likes being a foot or not, but my body wouldn't be what it is without my foot. And Uh so my foot can't complain that it's not my head because it, because we're all one, 
right? That's the whole thing. It's not, it's not, you know, I don't even, you should, can't even see them as two separate things. Like it's all one thing. And the more we realize we're one, the easier it is to, to, to make, to see that, that what happens to one of us happens to all of us. And the good things that happen to the people on the top, that actually is happening to the whole body. And the, the suffering that happens to the people on the bottom, that actually happens to the whole body too. And what we don't want to have, so I think what, what people are confusing, especially this is sort of the queer experience in the church, it isn't that we're, we're here and we're queer and we're complaining that we're not the eyes or the head. What we're saying is the hand has a hammer in it and is hitting the foot with the hammer over and over. One part of the body is attacking the other. Like, we're content to be the foot, right? I'm totally fine with that. I don't even know if queer people are the foot or what we are. But my point is that, that what's happening is a gross, gross injustice and wound on the body of Christ. And people think, oh, you just need to be content with where you are. I'm content with what I am and where I am. It, the problem is when we're being attacked by another part of the body. This is something that's unhealthy for the whole body. The whole body suffers, not just the foot. And another sort of outgrowth and application of Paul's teaching here has to do with should everyone look the same? I'm not, it, it, not just about skin color, but I mean, should everyone have a mom and a dad and 2.4 or 7.3 kids and a dog, Right. Should everyone's life look the same? And the answer is no. We don't all have to have children. We aren't, we aren't all able to have children. And not all of us will get married. Not all of us are able to get married. Um, and not all of us are even permitted to get married at this point in time in the church. So we have to look at our theology around marriage and realize, look, if you have just one goal and one path towards exaltation that looks very, very narrow, that is centered around one particular image of what a part of the body looks like, then that's like saying the, the only part of the, that the whole body needs to become an eye in order to be exalted. Like, no, no. And people will say, well, oh, I love this, this reproduction argument because people will say, oh, well, gays can't reproduce. First of all, yes, we can, most of us, right? That's still, that is still possible. And then with further technology, it will be possible for people to combine their genetic information and have biological children. Um, but but that's, that's irrelevant because we're not all supposed to, to, get, to, to have children, right? Like, not all of the body of Christ needs to be the reproductive organs. In fact, that's what I should probably say, is that straight people in the church are the reproductive organs on the body of Christ. And if they want to be proud of their role, go ahead. But that's not the only part of the body of Christ. Mm. Mm. And, you know, those are not the only organs that are going to get into heaven. So, Right. You know... I really love, you know, I love studying the scriptures, but what I also like doing, and I, I forget that I can do this sometimes, is study the early church fathers. And I, uh, I came across this quote by um, St. Augustine. 
And he's making the analogy using the concept of a hair. Because if you think about hair, it's probably the most disposable and the most replaceable parts of our body. Well, except for our our bald friends. They, they, They don't replace their hair as well. But hair seems to be the least important. But here's what what Augustine says about also hair doesn't feel pain either uh, so here's what Augustine says in his uh, in his text called the usefulness of fasting here's what he says quote aren't the hairs of your head certainly of less value than your other members what is cheaper more despicable more lowly in your body than the hairs of your head yet if the barber trims your hair unskillfully you become angry at him because he does not cut your hair evenly. Yet, you do not maintain that same concern for unity of the members in the church. Mm. Close quote. So basically his point is, if you care about what your hair looks like, why aren't you caring about what the uh, most despised in the church, how they're doing, right? Wow. Yeah. And I think that's brilliant. That is you brilliant. Need to figure out Thank you for sharing that. You know, who's left out. Mm-hmm. And then there's another text um, from from someone whom we know as Ambrosiaster, and from in the fourth century. And here's what he said in his commentary on Paul's epistles. He said, "The person who is greater in rank or dignity cannot do without those who are lower, for there are things which a humbler person can do." which an exalted one cannot, just as iron can do things which gold cannot. Mm. Because of this, the feet perform an honorable function for the head. And I love this idea that iron can is capable of stuff that gold is not. You know, gold is very soft. It's pretty, but it can't do yeah. everything. It can't, it can't be anything that needs to withstand force or, or durability, things like that. So iron can do what gold cannot. And I think that is so beautiful when people think that everyone in the church needs to be gold or everyone needs in the church needs to be straight or or mm. cis or white or male or anything like that. Iron can do what gold cannot, and we are better and stronger with diversity, with multiple people doing different functions, but all for the benefit of all in one body. And I think mm. the practical context on the ground has to do with what was going on in Corinth. They were divided over things like speaking in tongues. They were divided over food sacrificed to idols. They were divided over uh, behavior during the sacrament. All of these things, Paul is urging them to to make space for one another, to be more gracious and kind with one another. Um, he's saying, yes, let's let's uh let's unify in the face of these divisions yes excellent thank you for sharing so yeah that's all i had about um the body of christ do you want to say anything else about the uh, body of christ before you move on to your points yeah well one of the things to notice especially in the food sacrificed idols here you have a clear case where people in the church had different beliefs they had different standards Right. Because if you look at one of the most important commandments, the first commandment is. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Idolatry is like the one big no, no of Judaism. 
mm-hmm. you know, as long as you, you, you worship the one true God and you're on that covenant path, everything flows from that. So idolatry was, was an exceptionally important commandment. It's the root of all the other commandments. Mm. And, but Paul says, look, he, he never says, oh, you have to all agree, right? He's okay with mixed practice. He says it's okay if one part of the group thinks it's okay to eat food sacrificed to idols because I don't, idols don't really exist, and it's okay for this other group um, because of their conscience just to, to not feel comfortable eating food sacrificed to idols. Now, he does say that you know one group is, is stronger, um, the one who knew, knows that it's okay to eat idols, they're, they're like in the right, but they shouldn't use their freedom to mess up the lives of those who are weaker. Mm. And I think people who think like, oh, everyone needs to agree on uh, this one narrow orthodoxy within the church. And it's not just about LGBT issues. It could be almost any other issue from evolution to um, the role of women to any of these other things. This idea that we all have to have this very, very narrow tightrope of orthodoxy that we all have to be on the same page and we can't have differences of opinion, that is completely eliminated by Paul's argument here. He says, like, yes, it's okay to have differences of opinion and differences of perspective because you're all coming at it from a different context. But what you can't do is take those differences of opinion and let that divide the body of Christ. Hmm. And I think that's very powerful because so many people who don't have a knowledge of the scriptures think that everyone has to be on the same page in terms of opinion and perspective. And we don't really, right? Right. So I, I love what Paul, so Paul talks about food sacrifice to idols in both uh, 1 Corinthians 8 and 1 Corinthians 10. And I love what he says in verse 29. Okay. And he says, uh, why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? And I think that's a very important thing to, to point out for queer people in the church. People say, well, your liberty needs to be constricted and compressed because of other people's uh, morality. I'm like, no, that's not not at all what Paul is saying here. So that's, that's where he's going. One other thing that I want to note is just a brief note about whether Jesus was or was not married. We can't prove, quote, either way. But the historical evidence, we have one piece. This is probably the strongest piece of evidence in the New Testament that he was not married ever. And this comes from 1 Corinthians 9. And I'm going to read from Thomas Wayman's translation. So Paul is, is arguing, defending the idea that the apostles can get married if they want to. He himself is not married, but he says we as apostles have the right to get married. And here's what he says. First uh, Corinthians nine verse five, do we not have the right to have a spouse accompany us as the other apostles and brothers of the Lord and Cephas do? And so he's saying, look, Peter and Jesus's brothers, they were married, and he appeals to those examples. Now, certainly, if if 
Paul knew that Jesus would, was married, he would have obviously listed Jesus here because he's trying mm -hmm. to make his argument as strong as possible and, and compelling. And if he knew that Jesus was married, he, he would have said that right here. Mm. And it seems likely that if Jesus had been married, Paul probably would have known about it. He never met the uh, pre-Easter Jesus, but he knew Jesus' family. He knew Peter. He knew people who worked and lived with Jesus during his ministry. Um, he knew living traditions that come from the Jesus uh, 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 of history before Easter. Like He even quotes Jesus here in 1 Corinthians 11 on the sacrament. So he knows. He has actual verifiable traditional knowledge about Jesus. And he never appeals to Jesus's marriage ever in this argument. Um, and so that looks like Jesus was probably never married from this piece of evidence. Mm, interesting. Um, I wanted to bring out something in 1 Corinthians 11. There's a lot to talk about here about the role of women. I just wanted to, and there's more controversy than I want to, to bite off. But one thing I do <laughs> okay. want to bring out is the the text in 1 Corinthians uh, 11, verse 5. Here it says, Any woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered disgraces her head, for it is the same thing as having her head shaved. Now, I'm not going to focus on the second half about of that, but I want to focus on the first half, which says, Any woman who prays or prophesies... Like, wow. So, Paul and the early Christian community took it for granted that women were allowed to pray, to lead prayers in public, and to prophesy publicly in, in the context of the, of the worship gathering. And it, when we talk about the role of women prophets, we have to say, look, Paul literally is approving and presupposing that obviously there should be women prophets, right? Um, and women who are leading prayer worship. And another thing to, uh, I don't have the text in front of me, but this is in Acts chapter 2 where Peter quotes Joel chapter 2, and he also notes uh, that part of what the, the, one of the marks of the latter days is that there will be women prophets. And here's what it says in verse um, 17 of Acts 2. And it shall come to pass in the last days, saith God, I will pour out of my spirit upon all flesh, all flesh, which this also encompasses our, our siblings of color as well. Um, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. And your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. So one of the marks of God's latter-day people will be that the Spirit will be poured upon all flesh, all races, all nationalities, and both sons and daughters shall prophesy. Mm. And next week we'll be talking a little bit about 1 Corinthians 14 and, and what Paul says about women, and there's a you know, this is a challenging text there, 
And parts of 1 Corinthians 11 are challenging as well. But I just wanted to name that there's room for women's leadership and women's spiritual authority right here in the text, right here in mm-hmm. Paul. I just wanted to name that. Yeah, what are your? Do you have important. any reactions to that? Um, you know, I learned about I learned about this when I was actually preparing for my mission. Uh, this idea that Paul actually probably worked with female prophets and stuff like that. You know, that uh, he worked with women who did indeed prophesy. And, uh, you know, at the time it was just this, uh, this idea that the church has gone back and forth on certain cultural customs, like with regard to the hair was talking about in this verse or with regard to women having a more active participatory role in the administration of priesthood ordinances or priesthood responsibilities. Um, that's what I, I mean, that was the primary reason I was being taught about it at that point, but just this idea that this is a sign of the latter days, that uh, women are going to be prophesying, that everybody, all flesh, is going to be entitled to the visions, the blessings, the uh, blessings particularly of, you know, could be priesthood responsibility or gospel preaching. That's just, you know, that's just an amazing, beautiful thing to me. That right. And, you know, we we all have, you know, one thing I really try to check myself on on a regular basis is that, in and of myself, I am nobody as a result of any of the identities I espouse, like whether it be my maleness, uh, you know, my straightness or anything else like that, that God really can pour his spirit on anybody and anybody can be the greatest of us. In fact, he, you know, he says many times throughout the scriptures that the first shall be the last and the last shall be the first. I really do believe that it'll probably be queer black women leading us to heaven when that, when those days come, you know, that's just, I feel about, that's just how I feel about that. But, um, this is, I'll just say amazing equal parts, liberating as amazing and amazing as much as it is a warning to the saints to not suppose any kind of superiority or entitlement over or to anybody as a result of identities they espouse, you know, cause that, that can go, that can flip real quick. Right. And it will flip real quick when the, you know, end of days or when the latter days come to fruition or whatever, just that, that's the only thought I have about that. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. And I love this idea of the queer black women leading everything. And I think when, when Satan sees that he's going to step backwards on his tail and cry and scream because he did not succeed in dividing the church. Yeah. Yeah. I want to move to 1 Corinthians 13 and talk about two things. Oh, this is such a beautiful text. First of all is this idea that um, a lot of people assume this, and I think the less doctrine people know, the more they think that um, they know everything or that, not that they know everything, but we as a church know everything. Let me put it that way. The less doctrine okay. the individual knows, the more they think the church has it all, right? Because mm. I think once you have explored more of what the church is teaching, you realize, oh, the church doesn't have it all. And In this fact, is exactly we don't have enough. And that's like, that's where we're coming as a church is the realization, the slow but sure realization that we don't have enough. 
And I love what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, verse 9, for we know in part and we prophesy in part. It is totally okay for an apostle of the Lord to say, I don't know. Yep. Because Paul did it. And he says, we don't know. We only know partially. And even our prophetic abilities are limited. And we can only prophesy in part. And um, even what we do prophesy will pass, aw- pass away. In, Where in do you part- think those limits come from, Derek? Like, keep, continue with your thought, but I'm curious to if you have any desire to speculate on where those limits come from. Well, I'm going to look at the context to answer this, because in 1 Corinthians um, 13, verse 12, we see Paul saying, For we see dimly in a mirror, but then face to face. I know in part, then I will know fully, even as I have been fully known. I think there's just something limiting about this mortal world. Right, mm. we 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 knew a whole bunch in the pre-mortal existence, and then we go through the veil of for- forgetfulness, and we come to a place of limitation, a place of opposition, a place of hardship here on this planet. And part of that hardship is educative. That is, we go through a journal of moral and intellectual development here, and mm. we're supposed to learn things. We're, we're, we don't get everything spoon-fed to us. Uh, part of our our knowledge, in part, is so that we learn to have initiative and responsibility, and not have you know not have everything given to us on a platter. That's the whole point of what Jesus says. He says, "Ask, seek, and knock." In the Sermon on the Mount, in um, Matthew chapter seven, and some people get mad at the queer folks for asking for seeking Mm -hmm. and for knocking like i'm here Mm -hmm. asking for things i'm here seeking for more truth that we as Mm -hmm. a whole people don't have and i'm knocking on the door and asking to be included i'm literally doing what jesus commanded me to do and some people are getting mad Um, at you asking that is so interesting yeah, but my point is that, that that this whole journey in life is that we don't have it all, and we're supposed to to learn to become celestial adults with responsibility, with initiative, with drive, with a sense of independent um, authority. Mm. That that that's what this life is about, and and we won't. And Paul says we see only dimly as as through a mirror, but then we will see face to face. We don't see the Savior's face directly here. One day we will. And I think that is to answer your question as what's behind the limitation and the imperfection of our knowledge. Okay, cool. If I may share as well, um, just a couple thoughts occurred to me as you spoke. I can recall a couple of times in my life where I know that I was denied revelation because I was not ready to receive it. And I feel like that happens to a lot of people. I I feel like that happens to the church on a, you know, institutional level that perhaps we don't receive certain revelation that would bless certain populations in our church because the church is not necessarily in a position to do anything about that. Like that's a possibility. I'm not willing to entertain that entirely because I think that's giving the church a bit of a way out. Right. But I can, I can speak for myself when I say that uh, there have been times where I know that, I have not been given certain revelation because I was not ready to act on that revelation. Uh, at that particular time, it was actually about the truthfulness of the Book of Mormon. Uh-huh. Um, now, for one thing, I know I didn't put in the necessary 
work to uh, know the truthfulness of the Book of Mormon, but also I wasn't really ready to act on what the truthfulness of the Book of Mormon meant, at least not to the extent that the Lord wanted me to, you know what I'm saying? And I feel like the Lord operates that way with our prayers a lot of times, that the Lord is not apt to give us guidance or direction if we are not going to follow it. You know what I'm saying? Um, yeah, right. And I think I can recall one, just one time that I can recall in my recent memory that I actually did receive a prompting that I just totally ignored, but I haven't made that mistake since. And um, I feel like that's something we all have to get used to doing is being humble enough to hear answers when they're not necessarily answers we want to hear. Most recently, this happened for me when I started paying my tithing again. I had decided that I was going to stop paying my tithing to the church because I didn't feel like um, so long as the church engaged in practices that I was not cool with, that they were not entitled to my money. And I never did come to total peace about that. But I was looking for greater spiritual strength at you know a later point in my life during that period. And when I asked the Lord what I needed to do to receive it, you know, I was going through all the things that I could be doing or needed to be doing more of. And when I got to tithing, you know, I did get the impression that that was something I needed to start doing again. So I started doing it again, even though I didn't have a complete understanding or knowledge of why. All I knew was that I needed to start doing it. So I feel like we as a people uh, ought to be cognizant of our willingness and ability to hear answers that we don't necessarily want to hear if we are to move forward as celestial beings, eventual celestial beings, and uh, even as, dare I say, a church. Yes, and something that you said just reminded me of Second Nephi 28, verse 30, which I'm going to read. And a lot of people, you hear the first part quoted a lot, but not the second. So I'll quote this. It says, for behold, thus saith the Lord God, I will give unto the children of men line upon line, precept upon precept, here a little and there a little. And blessed are those who hearken unto my precepts and lend an ear unto my counsel. Now people know that part, but I don't hear the second part as well. Um, I mean, I don't hear the second part as often. It says, for they shall learn wisdom, for unto him that receiveth, I will give more. And from them mm. that shall say, we have enough, from them shall be taken away even that which they have. And this is literally in the context of revelation. If God gives you a revelation and you invest it and you work on it and you apply it and build more, God will give you more truth. But if you say, look, okay, we've got these revelations. We believe they're from God and they're enough. God will take those away. And I think one of the mm. best things, if people want more revelation in their life, one of the best things they can do is develop the revelations they already have. Oh, shoot, Derek. Yeah, develop Got the a whole word there. And I think now here, you, you know, you want to know, I don't know if, if this is really a valid conclusion or not, but we haven't had any major revelations, especially since 1978. Any, <laughs> since 1978. And you know why? Yeah. I don't think we fully worked out all of the implications of 1978. No, man. No, we have not. How is God going to give us stuff that we're not ready for if we haven't even finished the thing that he's given us to work on? Dude, big facts. 
big facts. That is such an important point to to make. Right. And like, so this yeah, sorry, so. this is just something that I didn't actually consider or something that I didn't say was the fact that God probably isn't going to give us more, not only because we're not ready to receive it and do anything about it, but because we haven't done anything or done what we were supposed to do with that, which he has given us already. Like that is just as important to the, this equation, I think. And, uh, you know, I'm really glad you said it. Right. And I guess a, a practical implication of that is if I want there to be more revelation on queer people or women, what I need to do is help out my black siblings in the church. Oh yeah. Big time. Big and time. actually live into official declaration too. And, yeah. and really go as far as we can go with that. And even more. Yeah. Big time. And let's get back. That is. Yeah. I was going to say, that's a celestial principle. Like, uh, I was re- you know, I was reading Jesus the Christ, and I remember I was reading, like, the notes, like, because that section is just so much fun. And uh, one of the notes talked about how Jesus never did anything that other people could have done themselves. You know what I'm saying? Like, mm-hmm. yeah, he performed that miracle of raising Lazarus from the dead, and he just as easily could have loosed him with his divine powers, but no, he had other people do it. You know what I'm saying? Right. Yeah, he had to bless the loaves and the fishes, but he had everybody else pass him out and stuff. He didn't utilize his divine power for any more than what he had to do. He pushed the limits of what people were able to do before he stepped in with his own divine power. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. And uh, that that is an eternal principle. I feel like God is going to do that with us. So, yeah, I totally agree. We got to push the limits of what we can do for our black and brown brothers and sisters, for our queer brothers and sisters, for our immigrant brothers and sisters, before the Lord's going to step in and be like, okay, y'all got this part, y'all got this much down, now this is what I need y'all to do next, that is going to make y'all all all the more, uh, you know, powerful or close to the spirit or whatever else. Yeah, I mean, how many people do you know in the church have the attitude of, oh, we have enough revelation? Too many! Too many, Derek! Yeah, a lot of people think that all of our doctrine is completely uh, finalized, and it's not. Um, people, Derek, think, oh, what's in the next chapter? What is in the next chapter? <laughs> yeah, we're gonna. What is in the next chapter? Um, Second Nephi twenty nine, bro. Like, how does that start? Do you remember? Uh, no, I don't. Dude, that's that uh, a Bible, a Bible. We have oh, got yes. a Bible. And yes, don't, yes, that, yeah, that. Okay, yeah. Holy crap, Derek. You, cra- you cracked something open, man. It's in the next verse. That is not a coincidence. It is not a coincidence, Derek. You found something, dude. Sorry, I'm getting <laughs> too excited. Continue. Um, but there are a lot of people that have this attitude of, oh, we know we know the plan of salvation. We have it. And that's, that's actually, when you look at Latter-day Saints and their view on queer people, it doesn't go back to what Leviticus says or what Romans 1 says. It goes back to, oh, we know what the plan of salvation looks like. Mm-hmm. I'm like, we don't even know Heavenly Mother's name. Mm. We don't know anything, almost anything about her. We know and, nothing. There's nothing about her in Scripture. And and because of that, we don't know. There's a lot that we don't know about even what straight couples look like when they're exalted. We, so how can you even think we know everything we need to know about what God has in store for, for gay people? And let's get back to mm. 1 Corinthians 13. Because a okay. lot of people think that the most important thing is to, to get the doctrine right. Now, I'm all on board with getting the doctrine right. Don't think that I'm some kind of sloppy 
liberal that that doesn't care about doctrine. I do. You're not a heretic. I do. But getting the doctrine right, if you don't have love, you don't get any credit for that. Let me say that this is probably one of the most important things that our that our friends need to know in the church when talking about this issue. There's some people yeah. that they'll they'll get the like oh they'll know what the church policy is they'll know what the church has said about this and they think that they're done and they then speak those things without any sense of love compassion or empathy or understanding for my people but paul says very clearly you know what all of those spiritual gifts like languages if you speak in tongues if you have prophetic insight, if you have prophecy, if you have understanding of all mysteries and knowledge, if you have faith that can move mountains, even if you have a self-sacrificial ability to give yourself as a martyr and die for your faith, if you have all of that stuff, but you don't have love, you don't get any credit for it. Mm. None of that other stuff can compensate for the lack of love. And there is a lot of lack of love for my people. And by love, I don't mean some fuzzy affection towards my people right there's that mm. but what i need is the love that christ has the ones that's willing to lay down everything you have all of your privilege all of your ego your own life for the sake of others who need you to to be on their side that's exactly yeah. what love is yeah and there's going to be people in this church that need to sacrifice on behalf of their queer and trans siblings and that will be love. And without that love, none of this other stuff that they get right is get gets counted as stuff that they got right. Mm -hmm. They have their com mm -hmm. priorities completely, completely backwards. Big um, time. And I just wanted to take. I'm not gonna. We've talked a little bit, so I'll, I'll save most of this for for. What, Sorry, what can I actually about. just? Oh, can I actually just add a witness to that last point before you move on? Sure. All right, all I wanted to say was um, love is the end of the law. You know what I'm saying? Love is the whole point of the law. Like back in Romans when we were discussing that, uh, you know, two weeks ago or whatever, we, kept, we, were, we were talking briefly about how the law of Moses was fulfilled, and it was fulfilled because the end of the law is love, the first two, the first and the second great commandment, because if you love then everything else falls into place. You're not going to commit theft. You're not going to commit murder. You're not going to covet anything. And I was just recalling this verse in Romans 13, how we're supposed to, how it says, Oh, no man, anything but to love another for he that loveth another hath fulfilled the law. And then verse nine goes on to explain how that is or why that is for this. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not kill. Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not bear false witness and thou shalt not covet. And if there be any other commandment, it is briefly comprehended in this saying, namely, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Like, right. Oof! Like that is that basically just says it all right there. Why love is so important? Because love is really what it's all about. It's not about the performances. It's not about anything else. If you don't have love, so th that that just brought that helped bring that full circle to me. Right, and I I just wanted to connect briefly, and, and maybe I'll just put a bookmark here, and we can talk about this more when we talk about Galatians. But I just wanted to say briefly okay. that. Paul didn't write the same thing to every church. He wrote based on what the situation on the ground needed. That's why we talked about Paul's letters as occasional letters, because he wrote them for a specific occasion. Right. And his, there, there was division. So, so it's probably in the New Testament that 
the two of Paul's churches that were most divided were probably Corinth and the churches in Galatia. And his approach to the divisions between the two are almost literally opposite and contradictory Hmm. because of the landscape on the ground. In Corinth, there was divisions, but he said, okay, just be nice and I'll get along and it's okay for you to have a little difference of opinion, but just be one and, and kind of smush it all together and, and make room for one another. Right. And in Galatia, um, you know what Paul did? What did he do, Derek? Well, <laughs> well, here's what he did. He basically uh, took one of the parties um, and condemned them in the most uh, in the strongest language. He basically said all of those who, and this was the whole Gentile controversy as to whether Gentiles needed to keep the law of Moses and circumcision in order to to be fully part of God's covenant people. And Paul looks at those people who were trying to oppress the Gentiles, who at this time were a marginalized, in a marginalized position in the early Christian church. They were being oppressed. Their identity was being erased. They were trying to um, be conformed to a, a certain other pattern. And Paul looks at the people who were oppressing them and said, basically, they are cursed to hell. He doesn't say, oh, we got to be nice and you got to be one. He says, no, get those away from you. Those people that are bothering you, get away from them. We are not one with them. Interesting. He also, he also in Galatians 5 verse 12, goes all the way to say, well, essentially, he says, this is paraphrase. He said, oh, if they're so obsessed with circumcision, they should just go, uh, go ahead and cut their whole penis off. If that's how important it is to them. That's the type of language. He has very strong language of condemnation. Um, very bold um, people okay people online okay let's talk about our friends online people online Oof. would say that Paul was being abusive and that he was being harassing and that he doesn't know his audience and that he um, doesn't know how to, to make a, an appeal and that he wasn't being nice enough and that he didn't Dude. say it right Dude. all those things that our friends online say about about us they could they could Mm. literally say the same thing about paul they could say well he was name calling well yes he was he said in uh i'm doing all this from memory he said in uh, the beginning of galatians 3 you foolish galatians that isn't Mm -hmm. very nice well he said it okay now i'm not justifying abuse i'm not justifying harassment at all so don't don't take it that way but when paul needed to say something he said it and Mm -hmm. let's talk about the landscape on the ground that okay. made the whole difference because in Corinth, it was the people who were in power and, and had privilege and maturity that were on the right side, okay? And he said- I'm sorry, the what? people in power and privilege that were on the right side? Yes, in terms of the food sacrifice to idols, it was the people oh, who okay, were mature. Gotcha. It was the people who were mature who said, look, we were mature enough to know that these idols don't exist and we can eat this food without our conscience being bothered. And it was mm. the weaker brethren who 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 did not feel comfortable doing that. Okay. And in that case, he asked the people with privilege to back down and make room for those, uh, because it's so it's okay to ask people with power to say, "Hey, you know what? You can go without this meat for a little while." That's not oppression. That is literally not right. oppression. That's saying, 
you have the the ability to make this sacrifice in order to include your other brethren until we can get everyone together. It's the exact opposite in, in Galatia in terms of the power and privilege dynamic. It's the people who, um, were oppressed that were right and they needed to be protected from the oppressors. And Mm -hmm. he didn't say, Oh, you know, whatever so let's all just get along and hold hands which is which <laughs> is what people <laughs> read into first corinthians 13 because he does say charity or love love bears all things believes all things hopes all things and endures all things he doesn't say that to the galatians that oh you need to endure what these people are doing to you the galatian gentiles he doesn't say that mm-hmm. he says these people who are causing you problems get them away from you and so if you don't, if you just take little quotes out of context and look at this golden nugget and, and like and embroider it on a pillar or something and put it on the wall, you miss what's going on the ground contextually that determines the, the, the wise response that Paul has in each case. And I mm-hmm. think there's something for both uh, Corinth and Galatia that can help queer people understand what's going on. Yes, there's there's times and places for us to to say, okay, we can we can still be one in spite of some disagreement. But then there's another place where we have to say, look, we've drawn the line. And what you are doing to this part of the body of Christ is not okay. Mm. And you are accursed. Um, And I'm sorry if if that hurts people's feelings that that an apostle of the Lord would need to say it that way. But if you look, if you read the whole epistle of Galatians, oh, I'm talking about this way too much. But No, this is great. But basically, I think I needed to say this because otherwise we'll, people will just take the lessons from 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 13 and say, oh, look, you're being bad if you're not charitable all the time according to my expectations of, especially if it's mm-hmm. a person in power saying that, right? And I yeah. wanted, I needed to say this just to clarify so that people don't use and misuse 1 Corinthians to to silence oppressed and marginalized people within the church because they being mean but in their opinions or whatever like because you see that happen all the time you see a lot of people just complain about the tone with which oppression is called out rather than the oppression itself right and they'll go ahead and quote you know first corinthians 13 or wherever it is be like you should you should follow the admonition of paul to like communicate with more charity because this hurts my feelings and i don't need to listen to you because it's hurting my feelings and all that other nonsense no that is you don't get to say that you are literally denying me love by refusing to acknowledge my humanity in favor of your feelings like that is not that is not okay and uh, i'm glad you made that distinction i'm glad you put that out there I did want to ask one more question, though. Is there any other particular reason that you feel like Paul spoke with the Galatians as he did, as opposed to how he spoke with the Corinthians, other than the power dynamic at play in those different places? Well, I think that's that's the the main issue. I think I, uh, I okay, think just making sure. But I think there's for Paul a more fundamental doctrinal issue at, at that's at play, because in Corinth. Okay. There's no doctrine one or way or another that says you have to or not eat food sacrificed to idols. It's, a, it's part of their freedom. They can say, I'm going to refrain from this behavior so it doesn't confuse my neighbor. That's not risking the freedom and liberty of the gospel. Okay. But in, for, in Galatians 5, 
Paul very seriously talks about our liberty in the gospel. And if, if the opponents succeed in Galatia, you will have compromised a fundamental doctrine of the gospel as to how we are right with God and whether circumcision is necessary. Because in, um, in, in, in Corinth, the food sacrificed to idols, no one was trying to, no, Paul wasn't telling the people who were more mature that, oh, you have to um, not partake of this food in order to be saved. What he's saying is you, you shouldn't partake of this food when it will cause your neighbor to stumble, which is different than the circumcision problem, which is a doctrinal thing around, is this absolutely necessary for salvation? And Paul says, no, 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 no. And so there's the power dynamic, and I think there is a um, actual doctrinal piece under there that that's that's different. Okay, gotcha, gotcha. But I will want to say this: this power differential is important to to realize. And, and it's the main and, thing, as you said. And why we should read Paul's epistles as a whole letter, like all of, read them not just a little nugget, but but I think we as Latter Day Saints have been culturally trained to like pick out a few doctrinal mastery verses or one of these proof texts that, that helps us somewhere, but like, no, we have to read, digest, absorb, and live and die by these texts mm-hmm. in order to, to have an impact in the world. And one thing you, you learn from reading the whole arc of the biblical narrative is that when people are suffering, God breaks the rules. God breaks the rules of nature. God breaks the rules of what people think should happen. God even breaks some of his own rules, uh, apparently, in order to uh, in order to serve those who are suffering. And that's where I want to end what I have to say on on First Corinthians. All right, I like that a lot. When people are suffering, God breaks the rules. I'd love to hear your I'd love to hear more thoughts about that. But yeah, let's uh, let's go ahead and move on uh, from Corinthians into uh, the prayer role. And, uh, yeah, I guess since we just talked about this, I'll go first because it's kind of relevant. Right. So, um, I am going to talk about our friends online, obviously not going to name any names or anything. So, uh, let me just set the stage with what happened and tie it back to this charity that we were just talking about, among mm-hmm. several other things. So, um, th- this past week, there was a there was just a lot of unchecked homophobia these pap- these past couple of days in particular, and I don't really know where to begin. So, like, I- I'm just gonna try to start from what I think was the beginning. Mm-hmm. Uh, a, a faith a faith matters article came out. And it listed some questions as an exercise to develop empathy, at least designed to develop empathy and understanding of the sacrifice that comes with reconciling LDS belief with one's own sexuality. Now, a straight white male who's a member of the church thought it would be a good idea to participate in the exercise publicly. And in so doing, he ended up saying some uh, pretty homophobic things. Um, so yeah, he went and started asking some of these questions or asking and then answering some of these questions. And I just want to point out a couple of these questions in particular. It said, this one question said, if a child or other loved one told me he or she is gay, am I prepared to tell them 
they must live out their life without a companion, a relationship they may urgently yearn for, close quote. And then he went on to say, quote, yes, because Christ demands really difficult things from all of us. But in the same breath, I would tell them I'll respect their choice without any judgment and will continue to love and respect them, close quote. So that alone rang the alarm for a couple of reasons. And I just want to highlight two of them. Now, the most obvious one is the denial of something that we straight people understand to be our birthright solely on the basis of orientation. That's homophobia 101. Like if you believe a privilege or a right should not be afforded to a gay person solely because of their orientation, that is homophobia. And I don't think that's a hard concept to grasp, right? Like that's not a hard thing. Now, second, and this to me is probably the most nefarious part of this whole thing was the assumption that Christ demands celibacy of queer people, and that's not actually anywhere to be found in our doctrine as defined by the church. Now, sure, many people believe that and they teach it, but since our doctrine as defined by the church doesn't actually condemn same-sex romantic and and sexual expression in all contexts, then we don't get to invoke the name of Christ to claim as much. In fact, this whole idea that uh, same-sex relationships or uh, same-sex attracted people queer people should uh be celibate that idea is relatively new like because we didn't actually you don't actually see homos like uh you, you don't see uh homosexual orientation being addressed in any texts until about the 20th century so that alone means that same-sex identity or same-sex gender attraction the idea that those people need to be alone that they need to be celibate that idea is new so that's first thing and and uh sorry just to go back to this whole other thing with regard to the doctrine this very notion that we can invoke the name of christ to claim and to claim that um to claim that same-sex sexual expression romantic expression is a problem this like using christ's name to condemn anything that is not actually doctrine. This was actually condemned in the scriptures from Matthew 23, quote, woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites, exclamation mark. You shut the kingdom of heaven in men's faces. You yourselves do not enter, nor will you let those who enter who are trying to. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites, exclamation mark. You travel over land and sea to win a single convert. And when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as you are, close quote proudly declaring that 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 you would tell a gay person that they can't authentically express themselves because you think Christ demands it is as homophobic as it is unchristlike and dangerous and this dude was not anybody to be making such an assertion not a theologian not a scholar not a psychologist or a scientist not a queer person just a straight white guy who felt comfortable sharing that he tell a gay loved one or child that they must live out their life alone because Christ demands it. And it only got worse from there. Now, when you, among a few other people, but primarily you, uh, raise concerns about the homophobic undertones of his responses to these questions, a bunch of straight white dudes started to demand explanations for people's anger, started to disagree with the assertions, 
And they even called such assertions nonsense. And to top it off, this is the richest part of it for me. To top it all off, at least three of these offenders admitted to not knowing the definition of homophobia. Yet they felt comfortable telling you, Derek, a gay man and a theologian who has studied queer theology for a number of years that you're wrong about your own oppression. Like, wow, man. Wow. Yeah. Straight there's a lot supremacy. of straight entitlement. Straight entitlement. Straight supremacy. White supremacy. I think I have started the prayer roll for at least three of the last four weeks with white supremacy is a hell of a drug. Straight supremacy is a hell of a drug that it emboldens people to just be so confident, to be so confident in their BS. It's just, it boggles the mind that you can admit that you don't know what you're talking about and still think that you have a right to express an opinion, especially when it has horrible implications for the people who you are harming, is beyond me, man. It is so beyond me. And, you know, yet all these particular individuals wanted to do was draw attention to their feelings, draw attention to the fact that they didn't like the way in which they were being called in, that they didn't like the language being used, that they didn't understand the language being used. In other words, centering themselves, their feelings, their egos in a, in a conversation that should primarily be a about eradicating homophobia, which is undoubtedly the much larger issue. So... I am just going to go ahead and pray for these particular gentlemen that they find humility in their ignorance and simply stay in their lanes when it comes to trying to address homophobia. If you Again, if you don't know what it is, if you can't define it, just be quiet and leave it up to the experts. Leave it up to the people who actually deal with this on a daily basis. Leave it up to the people who actually study this. Leave it up to the people who know what the definition is and know what it looks like. And then just take your position as an ignorant person and just listen, learn, read some books, get some queer friends, make an effort to educate your own self, and certainly don't demand that of the people that you just offended. Like this was something that I saw most in that particular thread. People went and said something offensive. The people who had a right to be offended got offended, and then they were just like, well, how's that offensive? Or can you tell me how that's offensive? Chances are, if you, are unwitt if you do something that's unwittingly homophobic, then the chances are you don't think have the highest opinion of queer folks to begin with. Why would I want to talk to you? Why would I think that you would believe me if I communicated something to you that was homophobic or communicated to you that something you said was homophobic? Like that expectation just makes no sense to me. You're going to demand more of my emotional and mental labor because the way that I called in your dehumanization was hurtful to you like that oh man people just yeah I'm, 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 uh, I'm gonna i'm gonna shut up now like but you know what i'm trying to say right i think there's 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 multiple layers now obviously one person being an idiot online well that's gonna happen but part of what happened uh -huh. is the the moderation and admin process for the group is that's where it should have been should have been caught because literally homophobia is against the rules of the group i i probably wouldn't have made the points that i made 
if it weren't against the rules of the group. Now, right. if they could if they could have it on the they could have a rule that says okay, homophobia is fair game, then yeah, that's not right, but but at least then queer people will know whether that's a safe place for them to participate or not and they can, and we can make an informed decision, right? But the way yep. it is, if you're going to claim that it's safe, you're setting up people for a very very painful trap. Now, I'm not particularly hurt by these things. Um, right, you got a thick skin, Derek. Yeah, I'm 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 very very immune to homophobia. And in what I was saying is not because I I was offended and I was hurt and I needed to say something. It's because this group needs to be safe for other LGBT people and I need to say something. Um mm-hmm. and many of our straight friends also said something on the right side. And I think here's something really, really uh, complicated is that what this original poster did, he thought he was doing something empathetic. And in part it was. I have to admit that he, that he was at least trying to be empathetic. Mm-hmm. But what he what he should have done was one of two things was uh, he should have either just posted these questions without his own answers like that. Those answers are for him to, to think about, not for me to learn anything. Correct. And or he could have. Um, with a trusted you know, person who can help him out and educate him, someone who's consensually made themselves available for teaching and. Mm-hmm. preferably someone who's paid to teach he could find yep. someone to say okay please help me work through this i want to understand um uh, and then make it a private conversation because the thing about a private conversation is i think mistakes are a little bit more okay there because then other lgbt people aren't around to get hurt mm, i'm much yeah. more okay with people saying you look I'm trying I know I'm going to make a mistake but let me just have this private conversation with you so I can learn more and do do something better Hmm. but then I think one of the biggest backlashes was and I what I said actually wasn't I don't think I ever said you are a straight supremacist I said things like this reflects straight supremacy which it does right Right. And when you actually break down the word, the word straight supremacy, it literally is true. They 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 have mm-hmm. straight relationships in a superior position and a superior what they think is a divinely approved position, which has effects on how they navigate the real world. They and that's that's why I think in some cases I use straight supremacy more than homophobia because homophobia. For some people, it would be about their intent or their awareness. And you don't need like either. Like the intent matters. No, you don't need to either to have a harmful impact. Right. And so straight supremacy is more about well, what is the effect? What is the structures? What are What's the balance of... Um, and so I would say straight supremacy is a mix of power, privilege, and prejudice. And conspiring together to hurt my people. And it mm. may or may not be known uh, or intentional. Uh, but that's that's where we are with this. Um, and I don't know where, where this is going to go in the group. Um, but it I has think to, it I has think to go with a couple of expulsions. Cause this is, you, you said it yourself. It's supposed to be a safe place for queer people. And yeah, it can't, that means we can't allow people who espouse homophobic rhetoric in. So 
at some point that has to be addressed that right that rule has been broken and that's going to be more aggressively enforced or something but you know we'll cross that bridge eventually in fact i i can do something to at least acknowledge that for the time being and we'll see where that goes i think another thing to to name is what what the point of sort of my comments and your comments was and it's not okay. for me it wasn't i wasn't saying these things to to convince all of the other people in the room to be nicer to gay people that's not the time and place to have that conversation what right. i'm trying to do is make the place safer for queer people to say and name it out loud that this is not okay and that that in in this group based on the rules of the gr- group but also just being a basic decent person means that these things are not okay to say and i think when uh part of social change involves um these things around social cues and what people feel emboldened or comfortable saying and this should not be a place where people feel comfortable saying that even if they have genuine questions even if they have things they want to learn that doesn't matter even if they want to have their side too it really doesn't matter the first important the uh the first and most important priority is to make this safe for my people to participate. Mm. And that means naming the problem. Now, that's why people thought that we weren't being nice. And actually, I didn't say anything about people's character. Like, I have no, no. I don't, I never said that they were, they were bad people or anything like that. Um, and in fact, a lot of the, the, the challenges, most of these people are actually good people. I don't have a problem with that, with them. It's a, mm-hmm. There's a this power and privilege and prejudice differential that we need to engage, but most of them are, were at least trying to do the right thing. But that doesn't mean that this needs to be a back and forth conversation in public where we both come, we both get to say our side, and we both get to uh, you know, kind of like a chess match where you both have the same number of pieces. Because really, this conversation is completely asymmetric. One side has the bulk of the power and the other side has the bulk of the risk this conversation Mm -hmm. in public i bear costs that other people don't now i'm fine i'm fine myself most of the time bearing these costs but it's a lot of other queer people who don't and there's also a numbers imbalance where i was way outnumbered as well by by straight people Uh, there were a few other queer people who made comments but none that really made it into an extensive conversation other than me and i if no one else does it then i have to do it um and i think that's that's the thing to be to be named is that uh that their reaction presupposes that their goal for the conversation was the same as mine to just come together and have a mutually enlightening conversation when what it is is it's transflowing resources from me to them for their benefit upon their request like and i think that's that just reinscribes their sense of straight entitlement mm-hmm. and that needs to be named totally totally all right well i don't have anything to add there uh do you want to go straight into uh Creating Christ-like change? Sure. So what I'm choosing is the riddle scale of homophobia. It's available online. 
it's a good tool for educating people about the different layers of homophobia. There's a, an eight, eight levels to the scale, and I'll just go through them starting with the first, which is the, the lowest one. And the first step is repulsion. It's this idea that gay is icky and that, you know, God doesn't make mistakes and this is some really awful, wicked thing. It's against nature and it's some, some awful depravity. And, and in many ways, our church officially has gone beyond that, saying, well, the orientation itself, there's no problem. There's no sin. There's no mistake. There's no um, flaw in development that has gotten people. That's just the way it is. And so... So we've got a basis for even bringing people past the repulsion stage. Although I should say that during the 70s and 80s, this church was very much in the repulsion stage. Like, why would God do that to people? Like, this makes no sense, that this would be natural, stuff like that. The second stage... Stuff like that was actually echoed just as as late as uh, the 2000s. Yeah. Um, the second stage is pity. Like, oh, no, I would never wish that on anyone, which is one, one of what our friend said in his responses to the, to the Faith Matters questions. This, uh, this idea of pity that, that still there's something tragic or wrong or, or, uh, or bad, especially when you think about this as um, in terms of conversion therapy. That is, okay, this is bad. Maybe we can fix it. The, the third stage is tolerance, and this is the idea of love the sinner, hate the sin. Like, okay, what, um, you know, there's this idea that there's some developmental problem or that it's an addiction problem or that this is where you get all of the, they, they make it seem like, oh, there's no actual gay people, but it's just something that anyone could fall into, like drugs or rock and roll or porn or any you know alcohol or gambling you know something that if you make the wrong choice you can get caught up in but that's not what being lgbtq is about at all and uh so there so this is their idea that okay they're kind of stuck there but we should just kind of love the sin or hate the sin the next stage is acceptance and i should say acceptance is still on the homophobic half of the scale because it implies that there's still something to accept and this is where you get things like, oh, what do you do in bed is your own business. I love you, whatever. Um, whatever you do is fine. Just don't do it in public. Things like that. Uh, but there's still underlying discrimination. The fifth is support. And this is when you still have feelings of discomfort around it, but you're trying to at least on the civil level work for some more rights. And I think this is where a lot of people in – our Facebook group were that they're like, okay, I get that, that something needs to be done. They're not all the way there, but they're like, okay, I want to try something. Then there's admiration. And this is where you get into some of the, what I would say good stereotypes like, Oh, gay people are all smart and handsome and, and well-educated and talented. And, and even though I'm all those things, uh, <laughs> not, all <laughs> not all gay people are. But there's some, but these stereotypes set up people for a double standard because then it's like, oh, you have to be cool in order to get rights or in order to have friends. Hmm. And that's not fair because, you know what, some gay people aren't going to be really cool. 
and some gay people aren't going to be aren't going to be nice and some gay people are going to be actually bad people and they still get to be mm-hmm. gay. You shouldn't have to be a superstar in order to be publicly gay just like you don't have to be a superstar to be publicly straight. There's going to be murderers and and criminals who are straight and they still get to be straight, right? And they yeah, you're going to find some some people who do bad things and they happen to be to be gay. Um the next one is appreciation. And this is where you have feelings that diversity is a good thing and people are starting to say, oh, look, gay people are a blessing, a net blessing to the church or the community. And then the eighth step is nurturance. And this is the belief that LGBTQ people are indispensable and that we should be a delight and celebrated. And and that's where we are. So that's a review of the the riddle scale and I want to say like three practical implications for this the first one is to help people realize that just because they move up one level doesn't mean that they've they fixed their homophobia I think a lot of people in the group who don't think that they're homophobic they got out of the repulsion stage or they got out of the um, pity stage and they're at another stage and they they think okay I'm woke now but this helps people know that, that there's a there's a progression here and our goal should be to get all the way to a seven and an eight another practical result is to help people assess their ward or their whatever context so that people can can move through it more strategically like where people are what can they say what can they get away with what can they not say things like that and then okay. a third thing has to do with individuals like you can figure out where an individual is and what they're ready to hear. Um, kind of like Matthew Vines talks about, you have to wait for the avocado to be at the right time. You have to squeeze it and make sure it's ripe before you do anything with it. Same thing here. Mm-hmm. We have to figure out where people are and who is the movable middle in any context and and work on those. So any thoughts or, or questions about this, this scale? I think it brings out... Um, a lot of the the mistakes that people in the group made. There was a lot of pity. There was a lot of tolerance. There was a lot of um, a lot of those behaviors. There was some support, like midi, you know, mid level support. Like, oh, I want you to have rights, but I don't want you to have rights within the church. That type of uh, approach. What mm. are your thoughts or, or questions about this? Oh gosh, I don't have. Thoughts or questions? I think you, I think your thoughts are more than adequate for this uh, particular subject. I really like the way you had to put things, and also just questions. I, uh, I actually looked up the Ridley scale of homophobia the last time we discussed it, just to make sure I wouldn't be lost when you spoke about it today. So, I think we are good. Like the only question I had, you answered, and you know that was just. What do you want people to do with this uh, with this set of information? And so long as people know what they're supposed to do with it, then uh, we will have accomplished the primary purpose of this particular segment, which you have done wonderfully, Derek. And I have a question for you. Do you think there's an equivalent, equivalent like layered um, thing for racism as well? That that if you get free from one room of racism, you're not free. You're you're just in a, just a larger room that's still racist. I think that. I think there is because I have met people who ha- are like I, I've always said that racism is a spectrum. 
I, I, I don't think we've sectioned it off by like different levels or different degrees and given uh-huh. them names, but we have definitely been able to concede that there are levels to racism because, you know, it, we, we really do have to, there, there are too many people both in and out the church that think that just because they never said the N word or they don't wear a clan hood that they're not racist, but there are several different ways you can be racist and none of them require and you know hardly any of them require actual hostility towards uh people of different colors like you could just be ignorant or you could just be apathetic and uh i want to give a shout out to james burston who gave a talk in my ward uh just a couple of sundays ago or just last sunday where he actually talked about how the commandment to um Oh gosh, hold on. I don't want to lose this. Basically, he said that there there's a difference between being kind and not being mean. Does that make sense? Yeah, say more about that. So, as Christians, we are commanded to do more than not be racist. You know what I'm saying? Like in this particular context, we're commanded to do more than simply not be racist. Like we actually have, like the goal of, uh, like I think we talked about this a few weeks ago, but when uh, God came to Peter and told him to call not what he has ordained unclean or whatever, like that whole thing, the commandment to Peter was to, diversify the church not to simply stop being mean to gentiles oh, you know what yeah. i'm saying that's a good point yeah so we have to do more of that there are people who don't wear clown who don't wear clan hoods but they still won't associate with black people there are people who will not say the n-word however when it comes time to welcome their daughter's new boyfriend who happens to be a black man there's all of a sudden problems you know what I'm saying? Just there are it, it's on a spectrum and that spectrum on that spectrum. I could say there's things like hostility, hatred, there's fear, there's ignorance. There are just many different sources of racism, but not all of them come as a result of simply being hateful. A lot of them come as a result of being apathetic, right. you know, so uh that, that, that's all. And the, and the most glaring, I'll just share this, the most glaring example I see of this today is uh, when bad things happen, when like communities of color, whether they be here or abroad, when they're affected by things like crime, poverty, war, or other negative things, we don't seem to care about those as much, you know? And uh, that's, that's just another example of this. We've talked about that on the show as well. Like when the Notre Dame Chapel, when the Notre Dame Chapel burned down. Meanwhile, there was literal arson committed on three black churches in America. Yet the church said more about the Notre Dame Cathedral burning down than the three churches being burned down here in America. Like that's a form of it as well. Like that's just an apathy that displays. It's an apathy, and that is still that is that is still racism. Yeah. and I think one part of that spectrum probably might be the the colorblind stage. Like, oh, I don't see color. Like, we're all the same Certainly. and and if we don't if we just ignore race then there won't be racism and they and they've come out of somewhere to get to that stage, but there's more they need to to go. Certainly. And th- that's and, why uh, 
Sorry, go ahead. That's why I've never claimed to be non-racist. What I claim to be is anti-racist, which means I'm going to resist and oppose racism when I see it elsewhere and when I see it in myself. Right. And I think the biggest test of my character on this issue will be when I do something or say something that's racist and you call me in, how do I react? Am I going to criticize the way you said it? Or am I actually going to to uh, to take it in and make changes? And I think that's yes, that's the real test of of whether or not I'm anti-racist. And I wanted to say and one just to clarify. Yeah. Oh, go ahead. I was going to say to clarify, the right thing to do is the latter, just in case anybody oh, was yes. confused by that. Oh yeah, it's clear. Yeah, yeah. Um, one. One thing to say is, and here's here's what's really dangerous about this the homophobia that's nice, um, and we got some of that in the group, is if yes. I if I had two glasses on the table, one is filled with milk, which I like milk, and has a couple of drops of arsenic <laughs> in it that I might not be able to taste, versus a uh, a glass of gross decomposing raw sewage which also now happens to have a little bit more arsenic in it and you put both of those on the table which is more dangerous it's actually the milk with a little bit of arsenic because i'm not going mm. to to drink this obviously awful thing and i think that's right. the real challenge with what some of our friends were doing in the facebook group is yes um that original post had some degree of of trying to be empathetic which made him feel like oh he's he's arrived and it and it makes it look safer for people who can't recognize homophobia they don't see what's wrong with this thing so it's actually yeah. more dangerous mm-hmm. i think it's if a trojan horse yeah i think if if someone came in and just said all sorts of obscene derogatory slurs about gay people that would have been uh deleted right away or blocked right away and it wouldn't have hurt people as much as this ongoing conversation and debating our our dignity and making us teach them like the real homophobes they don't demand that i teach them i mean not the real homo the the eh, what is the word the sort of outwardly gross um all the way homophobes they don't Mm -hmm. they don't they don't tell me how to to meet my goal because they don't even want me to meet my goal. They're not helpfully educating me on how to do my job as a queer person who has done it for 30. I'm not going to say how many years, but for more (laughs) than 30 years. And now here we are. And I think that's, that's why people don't understand the gravity and the solemnity with which we resisted this comment, because it's actually more dangerous that the, the more, uh, diluted by this this niceness, the actual more dangerous it is because then people will really get hurt by it in a way that they wouldn't have right. in some more gross right. form. So that's kind of all I had to say about the riddle scale of homophobia and its implications. I hope that this is a helpful tool that people can use in a practical way when they're navigating their their local situations. I'm sure it will be, Derek. And uh, thank you again for sharing it. If there's nothing else, nope, there's then nothing else. That is sweet. Then that is going to conclude uh, this week's episode of Beyond the Block. Thank you, everyone, for joining us. Yep. Thank you, everyone. I'll see you next week. Bye. <laughs>